G'day, I'm Martin, and on the first episode of season two of The Truth of It, we're going to talk about the most important High Court decision in a generation, that is Kathy Club's case, the federal budget and all that that means for the Christian, and finally, the movie Unplanned and its unexpected box office success. Welcome back to season two of The Truth of It, ACL's weekly newscast on politics and current events uh, to cut through the fake news and bring you what it says on the tin, which is the truth of it. And today is a significant day. It is with a heavy heart that I bring you the first agenda item, which is that pro-life activist Graham Preston um, and pro-life mother of 13, Kathy Club, have today uh, had their criminal convictions upheld by the highest court in the nation. They are still criminals, and the law under which they were convicted is, I regret to say, valid. For those of you who don't know about Kathy in particular, you know, Kathy is a woman who I got to know a little through the course of this case, and she's a remarkable woman, part of a ministry who call themselves the Helpers. And you know, the Helpers have existed in East Melbourne for some years, and one of the things that they have been doing is making simple offers of help to women as they approach abortion clinics. Now, sidewalk counsellors who do this kind of thing have a pretty bad reputation because the media have been very successful uh, at pretending that they're harassers and obstructors and all these negative things. But you know what? Kathy, through her soft approach and the efforts of her and her friends, they've actually seen more than 300 babies saved, born alive, and their mothers given the vital help that they needed often in desperate circumstances. Kathy and the helpers have done whatever it takes. Uh, maybe it involved giving financial support to have the baby and raise it. Maybe it involved giving some in-home care and help. Uh, maybe uh, it involved safety from coercion or domestic violence. Maybe it involved friendship and companionship. They stood ready to do whatever it took in an incredible ministry that has had a massive impact on real lives and, in fact, has resulted in lives existing today that otherwise would not have existed. So as Kathy says, she says, when I'm involved in pro-life work, I feel that I can be an apostle of God's mercy. Life advocacy outside the abortion facilities is an act of mercy to the women and men who go in there. And I'm full of admiration for a mother of 13 and her friends and supporters who are willing to be uh, be ambassadors for Christ in that way and to reach into lives and minister to them and save lives. But you know, it was 2006 when Fiona Patton, who was a member of the Victorian Upper House, uh, she was then a member of the Sex Party, introduced what we call exclusion zones, 150 metre buffer zones around abortion facilities, uh, with a law accompanying that saying that within that 150 metre zone, you're not allowed to communicate on the subject of abortion in a way that can be seen or heard. The Australian Labor Party, who was in government in Victoria and still is, uh, introduced their own law modelled on Ms Patton's bill, and it passed. And you know, many who advanced and advocated for that law knew, 100% knew, that the only people that would be immediately affected by it were people like Kathy. It was all done under the auspices of women are running the gauntlet and they're being harassed and obstructed and stopped and all this. If that were happening, the police would have more than sufficient powers to ask people to move on, to make the area safe, and even uh, to charge people with different summary offences. 
But see, that's not quite what was happening. Really what was happening was the sort of help that Kathy was offering. And that's why the law had to go to that low threshold to say even just communication on the subject is itself unlawful. And you know, Kathy, one cold August morning after that law was passed, she handed a piece of paper to a couple who were approaching that clinic um, and uh, they refused it. But it was at that moment that several police officers pounced. They arrested her. They charged her. She was criminally convicted in Melbourne's magistrate's court. And the high court case, which came to a head today, is the end of a very long story of Kathy fighting for the right to help women in their hour of need. Do you know, there's a lot of arguments that have been raised uh, against Kathy, and I want to deal with some of those. You know, some people, and in fact, this is the media narrative, say, no, no, that kind of thing is just harassing women. Uh, it's, it's attacking vulnerable women uh, in a way that is inexcusable and it needs to go. But, you know, if the simple act of giving a piece of paper to somebody is sufficient to harass them and offend them, I would suggest it's not actually that giving the piece of paper to them is the problem. In any other context, there's nothing wrong with that. But I would suggest the real issue is that the person is conflicted in their mind and their conscience about what they're doing. And that action is upsetting them for that reason, not because the action itself is wrong. And you know, if that's true, I say, well, there's the perfect opportunity to have a conversation. Women are tormented from the pain of abortion. Live Action, a US advocacy group, recently put out the, the comments of women who have aborted children and now live with the pain. Talking of hearing their baby cry in the middle of the night when the child doesn't exist. Talking of the, the abject suffering that they have gone through and how they hate and abhor themselves for what they have done. It's tragic reading. And research backs this up, that women suffer. And you know, maybe that's the perfect time then, before they go too far to have a conversation. You know, others say, well, it's not the right place or the right time. If you're going to offer people counselling and this kind of thing, not outside the clinic. Come on, make sure that it's professional counselling in in somewhere proper. Well, I say, well, okay, fine. How about we do what some European nations have done then, progressive European nations, and we legislate for counselling. And we say that if a woman wants an abortion, she needs to be counselled about the alternatives. Go to Belgium, Netherlands, France, places like this. Uh, That's what they have in their laws. Or some of these countries also have cooling off periods. If you go and you ask for an abortion, you've got to wait four days, three days, six days, whatever it is in the jurisdiction, so that you think about it. And you think about the alternatives before you go through with it. We don't have anything like that in Australia. And these clinics on the whole don't offer alternatives. And they don't offer this counselling. They just go through with the process. It's what they do. It's their bread and butter. And so we're left with limited options. And you know, these women that Kathy helped, many of them felt they had absolutely no choice before she spoke to them. And they wouldn't have heard that they had choices. They wouldn't have felt that they could turn to somebody if she wasn't there. So it's not the wrong place and the wrong time. It's precisely the right place and the right time. And if we're going to change the place and time, we should change the law to allow that change to take place. You know, others have said to me, the law is the law. So, you know, you've got to obey it and, uh, you know, abortion's legal and, uh, you know, they have no right to break it. Well, I don't think anybody really believes that. We look back in history and we openly condemn those who used that excuse. You know, the Nuremberg trials, they put that to bed once and for all. They said just because something's legal, just because something's even compelled by law, doesn't excuse you for going through with it. Um, Or you consider something like slavery. 
Do you know, slavery was completely legal. Slavery was politically controversial. Slavery was economically vital. Slavery was um, socially acceptable. But I'm so glad that people stopped saying, hey, you know what, it's legal, get on with life. And they challenged unjust laws and they pushed forward to make a difference. Nobody really believes that the law is all there is. We all believe that there is a higher morality. And you know, that's been really embedded into our system and in our Judeo-Christian way of thinking. If you go back to the guys who were the earlier common lawyers, you think of people like uh, Sir William Blackstone writing in the 18th century. Uh, you think of uh, Sir Edward Cook, uh, who wrote in the 16th century. These guys were the giants of the legal profession in their day. They weren't people on the fringe. And yet Blackstone, he wrote that, you know, law really comes from God. That's its origin. And he said law includes the immutable laws of God, like laws of motion and laws of gravity, but it also includes those rules by which we are commanded to make use uh, of, our, of our abilities and our, our commanded to, those rules by which we are commanded to live our lives. And he says that comes from God, and true law is consistent with that. And he says, and the highest expression of that isn't found in the statute books, it's not even found in natural law, he says it's found in the Holy Scriptures, because that is a direct revelation of God's law. And he says, actually, that should form part of the law of England. This is the giant of law in his time. Um, Well, let me read to you from Sir Edward Cook. I love this. He says, uh, for as in nature, we see the infinite distinction of things proceed from some unity, as many flowers from one root, many rivers from one fountain, and many arteries in the body of man from one heart, many veins from one liver, and many sinews from the brain. So, without question, the law rises from the divine mind. And this admirable unity and consent in such diversity of things proceeds only from God, the founder and fountain of all good laws and constitutions. And, you know, these guys, they're bang on the money. It's totally true. Um, It is a fact that that is in the Bible, that governments are called to a ministry of right and wrong. That's Romans 13, to punish evil, to reward good and ensure that the laws of the land uphold that moral standard. What moral standard? Well, true morality, God's morality, the right and wrong that he's built into the very fabric of the universe and which he reveals to us in Scripture. And, you know, it really worries me when we get to a point in society like this, I just reflect on this case and I I say, well, this is Isaiah 5.20. This is that dreadful inversion of the moral compass that means that governments become incapable of doing their job. The legal system becomes incapable of operating. It says, woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter, who reverse the moral compass and say, in effect, yes, through a lot of technical legal reasoning and all the rest of it, but in effect, that Kathy's ministry of saving 300 lives and ministering to 300 women is worthy of a criminal conviction because it involved handing a piece of paper to somebody 50-odd metres from an abortion clinic. Where are we? Do you know there's real cause for concern? The moral compass is actually becoming unmoored in our nation. And I say this, how vital is it, therefore, that Christian voices be raised at a time like this, that truth be spoken at a time like this, and that we get busy really backing organizations and institutions that are pushing hard to tell the truth into dark places, especially the pro-life issue. Huge progress is starting to be made in America and I feel as if there should be an opportunity for us here in Australia to make a difference because it works when the light is switched on. 
Um, I'm going to turn to item number two now, which is the federal budget. And I'm going to give you a quick highlights reel and then make a comment about the budget generally. The highlights reel is this. Firstly, as we know and have been told ad nauseum, there is a budget surplus. Now, it's a skinny surplus and it depends on circumstances outside the government's control, like the global economy. But the, the narrative is if all goes to plan, that's what's going to happen. Secondly, cuts to income tax, four and a half million Australians, quite a lot, will be $1,080 better off every year, which is quite a lot. And uh, for a dual income household, that means $2,160, nice. Uh, $100 billion on infrastructure over the next 10 years, that's a lot, but population growth is pretty stunning. Uh, so I think that will be absorbed like that. Uh, Medium-sized businesses up to $50 million turnover will be able to instantly write off assets. There's $2.1 billion to be saved through improved delivery of social welfare payments, which is curious. That's a lot of money. They're going to automate the payments and reduce overpayments. There you go. Uh, I didn't know you could get that much out of such a simple change, and it's worrying that you can. Um, quite a big spend on healthcare. This was a big focus, $331 million to list new drugs on the PBS, $448 million for primary care funding to people with chronic conditions, $187 million to end the indexation of Medicare rebates a year early. Um, you know, the problem the government has had so far is that nobody's listening. Politicians have that problem. People aren't engaging with their social media accounts. They can't figure out why. It's because everyone's sick of them. Um, nobody's listening to their policy announcements. Nobody's listening to what they say on the news. Everyone's fed up. They don't like politicians. They're not, not hearing a word. And so a lot has happened in the political process over the last six months or so, but the polls are just stubborn. They won't budge because people have kind of shut down. Um, there was that whole border security thing, Christmas Island, etc. The polling indicates that that question should cut through in the community, but it didn't actually budge the polls. Um, however, it looks like somehow people have heard the budget message, that there is, in fact, a bit of an uptick. It might be a couple of outliers, it was a Zipsos poll and a news poll, but they both sort of tell the same story. News poll narrows um, the two-party preferred between Liberal and Labor to 52 to Labor, 48 to the Coalition, which is, um, well, it's a lot better than it was. It's a lot better than it was. It's probably the most cause for optimism they've had in a little while. And here's the important thing, the primary vote for the coalition was higher than the primary vote for Labor in that poll. So you see the two-party preferred, that's once all the preference distributions are done, they sort of do a guess at what it would look like. But the primary vote figures are really, really important because on the primary vote figure in news poll, it means that Labor wouldn't be able to govern over the coalition in their own right, um, which is very significant. And may, I hesitate to say this because we we'll probably need another poll to back this up, may put the coalition within striking distance of winning government if the next four, five, six weeks goes perfectly. Perfectly. So that's a very interesting development indeed. The poll actually showed that people rated the budget overwhelmingly positively and felt like they would be better off under it. Now, let me make this comment though. What about the Christian's view of the budget for a second? That's, that's a general observation. I give credit where credit is due. A good budget is a good budget. A surplus is a surplus. Tax cuts are tax cuts. That's all very nice. Um, and I think it's relevant. But I don't think that the budget is a determining factor for a Christian's vote. It's not the most fundamental thing by any stretch of the imagination. Do you know how many of our neighbours will vote for the widest motorway? They'll vote for the fattest Centrelink check. They'll vote for uh, the deepest tax cut. They might vote for the leader with the best personality or the best looking leader or vote out of revenge uh, for a whole spate of leadership changes. But I'm going to contend this. I contend that the Christians' vote should be different. 
There should be a different organizing principle in our brains when it comes to how we measure who we vote for and what a government should look like. Because the most fundamental consideration to the Christian's vote is actually given to us throughout Scripture. It's there at every turn. If you look at Solomon's prayer, for example, everybody knows Solomon prayed for wisdom, but not that many people go in to look at um, why he prayed for wisdom, which he says in the same sentence, he prays for a discerning and understanding mind. He says, so that I might discern between that which is good and that which is evil. For how else am I to govern this great people of yours, he says to God. Isn't that interesting? He wants to know for the purposes of that ministry to which he's been called, which is to govern the nation, he wants to know what is right and wrong, what's good and what's evil. He says, help me see that with clarity. And you know, that comes up over and over again. I could even just go to the New Testament, 1 Peter 2. It says, governors as sent by God for what? To punish those who do evil, reward those who do good. It's a right-wrong paradigm once again. You go to Romans 13. It's very clear. It says that, you know, governing authorities, it says, that they, it says that they punish the wrongdoer and they reward the one who does good. Again, it's this right-wrong paradigm at every turn. And I think the shorthand way of saying that is what Solomon says later in life when he writes Proverbs. He says, righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. And, you know, I think that governments really, what, what lies at the core is this moral compass, righteousness, right and wrong. Governing authorities see is something that God actually gives to some people and he gives it to them for a purpose. Remember Jesus said to Pilate, he said, you'd have no authority at all except that it was given to you from above. Uh, Romans 13 says governing authority is given by, instituted by God and is of God. For there's no authority except from God. The idea that God has all the authority and he gives some of it as governing authority to some in this world and he gives it to them for a purpose. And Romans 13 actually uses that remarkable word. It says that it's a ministry and it's a service to God. And the ministry to which they're called is the ministry I just described, which is a ministry of punishing, restraining wickedness and promoting good and seeing with clarity morality and moral compass and what is right and what is wrong. These people, they have a really high calling in God's world in God's design for God's world. There's no such thing as a Christian anarchist. Well, I hope there isn't because, uh, you know, this makes it clear in Romans 13 that government's part of the system and he's called people with governing authority to something great. And God is concerned for their moral compass. He's actually concerned with that principle that Jesus articulates in the Sermon on the Mount where he says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things shall be added unto you. And I think that's a bit of a story in the Old Testament. Um, I think that's a bit of a story in the Old Testament, which is that when they do rightly, other things come along. All those brass tacks of the day today, all those considerations um, that we have to make for dollars and cents and things like that, he says, you know, if the moral compass is straight, the rest will probably straighten out too. Um, I think that's a principle of life. And I think it applies to the governing authorities as, as, as much as it applies to our own lives. And, you know, our neighbours might not know it, but it's in their best interest, therefore, that you vote for a government with a moral compass. And it might be that they don't really have a clear view of what a good moral compass is. This is why we concern ourselves with those issues that make us pesky as Christians, like pro-life. It is supremely a moral issue. And so, too, are so many other things. And that is why I would encourage us to think, what does God require of governing authorities requires that they ensure in their ministry for him that righteousness exalts the nation. And that's how we 
should vote. And yes, I know it disappoints us because everybody's going to fall short to some degree and in some measure, and they're going to fall short either a lot or a lot, 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 and uh, that's true. We have to use a discerning mind to pick the best. But you know also, I think perhaps it should just remind us that it's actually Jesus who says, it's of him that it's said, a scepter of righteousness is a scepter of his kingdom. And he is coming to fulfill that ministry in fullness and in completeness. And we should always have our hope firmly anchored in that moment. And we shouldn't lose heart or lose sight of that. Final issue, and this is actually ultimately a good news story. This is the movie Unplanned, which a number of you may have heard about uh, in US theaters. It's a movie that tells the story of former Planned Parenthood clinic director, Abby Johnson. Now, Planned Parenthood uh, is the largest provider of abortions in the United States of America. They do over 300,000, much over, I think it might be over 360,000 abortions every year, which is incredible. Um, they are a giant of the so-called healthcare industry over there. And they are partnered with people like Mari Stopes and that kind of thing here in Australia. Um, in 2008, Planned Parenthood named Abby Johnson, the subject of this movie, Employee of the Year. And over the course of her career, she oversaw clinics that performed tens of thousands of abortions. But one day in 2009, in September, Abby Johnson was assisting with an ultrasound-guided abortion at 13 weeks gestation and she writes in her memoir that she was struck by just how similar the unborn child looked to her daughter. Then as the vacuum tube was inserted, she saw the child squirming and twisting in what looked like a desperate attempt to get away from it. And she writes, for the briefest moment, the baby looked as if it were being wrung like a dishcloth, twirled and squeezed, and then it crumpled and began disappearing into the cannula before my very eyes. The last thing I saw was the tiny, perfectly formed backbone sucked into the tube, and then it was gone. And you know, nine days later, she resigned, and she became a leading pro-life activist in the United States. And Unplanned tells her story. And you know, predictably, the movie has faced roadblocks. Uh, despite containing no profanity, no violence, no sex, and so on, Hollywood gives it an R rating. Why? Well, it limits its reach to young people. And then in an unexplained move, Twitter suspended the movie's account twice um, on the weekend of its opening release. Um, it reinstated, there was huge backlash and it reinstated the account, but um, still no explanation as to why that happened. And many major media outlets across the United States refused to carry the movie's commercials. It was roadblocked at absolutely every turn. Uh, and they faced formidable opposition. But you know what? Didn't matter. Despite all of that, with only a limited release in just a thousand theatres, on March the 29th, the movie came in fourth at the US box office. Um, and once you consider the limited number of theatres in which it was actually running, and you do the data on that, the sales per theatre, it actually came in second ahead of Captain Marvel, which is unbelievable. And the distributor, uh, PureFlix, have expanded the footprint of Unplanned to another 500 screens. Um, now, that's a remarkably good news story. Um, and another good news story to come out of it is actually that the film, uh, the lead actress in the film, um, Ashley Bratcher, who revealed uh, when, uh, recently that her mother had actually scheduled an abortion only to change her mind at the last minute and go on to give birth to her. And that caused some publicity for the film when they told that story, um, which is a remarkable thing to see 
uh, her now going on to do what she has done in being the lead actress for this movie. Now, this movie, of course, is going to face opposition. Um, I always just point it back to that Romans 1 principle that, you know, once people have gone this far down the road of saying, this is right, this is right, this is right, and they've almost become uh, like gods in declaring what is moral and what is not, and ignoring the true standard, there comes a point at which uh, there's a desperation for approval. Uh, and it says, you know, we, we, we crave that approval uh, so that our conscience doesn't really bear witness against us, so that we can double down on the lie that this is true and that we are right. And so I'm not surprised that for something as dark and as, the, as, as, as abortion, um, questioning the narrative is met with such massive opposition. We should always expect that. Uh, it's built into the way, um, the way that the human mind wo works uh, in sin and the fall, and that's a real tragedy. Uh, but at least we understand why it happens that way. And ACL is looking at how we can get unplanned into Australian theatres. Um, we'll see how we go with that. Uh, I think we've got a real chance. Um, but if we, if we do, we'll be able to go see it. Um, but uh, if not, it's something that we should all keep an eye out for and watch when it is released on disc here in Australia. A good news story to wind out this, the first episode of The Truth of It.